everybody. Welcome to Slip Angle. Um, this episode is brought to you by Apex Pro, uh, FCP Euro, and uh, Afternoon Naps uh, by Baby. So I'm here <laughs> with Andrew Rains of Apex Pro, and we're going to talk about stuff. How are you, Andrew? Yeah. I'm great. Uh, thanks for uh, thanks for taking uh, some time out of your busy, unemployed day to uh, to speak with me. Yeah, it's like it's not too bad. Ashley went to work at one o'clock, and uh, you know, we just Sloan and I have been hanging out and you know doing doing things, rolling around the floor. She's uh, she's getting to the point now where she wants to climb up a stair or two, but she doesn't quite have the strength. So I like you got to keep an eye on her pretty much all the time because she's <laughs> she's like she's not fast, but you'd be surprised how like you know, how far a baby can go in like 10 or 15 yeah, seconds. She'll get away from you. I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> cool. Well, I hope you're enjoying the like transitional phase. Cause it's, it's not very often in life you get time to just, you know, reflect and kind of figure out what your, what your plan is. And it sounds like that's kind of where you are. So that's, well, it's, I hope it's been a little that. like strange, right? I've been go, go, go for the last, you know, my entire life basically. And, uh, you know, for the first time in a few minutes, like I don't have, I don't have anything pressing. Actually, at the moment, I'm I'm doing things that are, you know, some might argue are less pressing. Like I'm working on the Tracktune website, and I'm trying to, uh, you know, trying to make podcasts a little bit better and make posts and like uh, make stuff that's interesting for people to read. Because um, I like to write. You know, I, I write professionally um, in my like science job, and it's it's it was a big part of what I did and the work product that I that I had. Um, but I like writing stuff that, uh, isn't necessarily like for work. And, um, in that way, it's, it's like more important to me because if someone reads it, it, they're reading it, not because they need to know exactly what I have to say. They, they might read it because they want to know what I have to say, which is a big difference. Yeah. You know, like if you're an expert on a topic, uh, scientifically or technically, people will read what you have to say because they want to learn about the things that you know. Um, but like if you write a, an entertainment article for, you know, Moto IQ or track tuned or whatever, and someone reads it, it's just because they want to. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not, there's, there's a lot less situations where they're reading it and they're going to, it's going to be like, like you're saying, like a technical article that they have to have this information to complete their project or whatever. It's more or less just like, Oh, this is good information. I need to read this article. Yeah. So, um, just kind of working on those fronts and, uh, applying for jobs here and there. Nothing, uh, nothing too urgent, but, uh, you know, living life, doing my thing. Yeah, that's cool. I assume you'll get to go to a handful of, uh, grid life events then. Well, I'm, I'm trying to work out my schedule to go to the skip day at Willow Springs, which is next Thursday, um, in a slip angle capacity, which should be fun because that worked out really well at Coda. Um, but like flights, uh, flights from Indianapolis to LA are inconvenient. And, mm-hmm. uh, most of the flights from Chicago to Los Angeles are expensive. So like, uh, yeah, yeah. I guess it'll kind of just depend, but, um, the the Wednesday event is supposed to be a lot of fun. There's going to be a lot of, um, I don't know, like California car culture people there, which uh, I would say I don't know that scene as well as Adam does, but it'll be, I'm interested to get to know that group of people. So I think I'm going to try and make every effort to attend because cool. I think that, I think Slip Angle has a strong presence in um, the Midwest, uh, but it would be cool to break into those new geographies too. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and car culture is definitely very like geographical and like track culture is too, you know, the, we don't realize how much our like local communities kind of influence, like, you know, every tracks kind of got its own set of like, you know, the fast guys and the slogan, you know, oh, for every, sure. yeah. every different kind of little group. And California is kind of like the, the founding father of car culture in the country too. So I think a lot of people that haven't been there to experience that, which I'm one of those people. And I just know, I just know that it's like, um, it's a much bigger, you know, group of people out there. Cause there's a lot of tracks. There's a lot of enthusiasts. Um, there's just a hotbed for that. You know, that was like back in the sixties and seventies, there's a hot rod shop on every street, you know, yeah. in LA. Yeah. Well, um, I think, uh, uh, we had Kevin Burke on the show a while back and, uh, something that he talked about was what, uh, like largely how inexpensive it is to do track days because, you know, the tracks don't necessarily have to make their their annual earnings in a very narrow time window, right? Like doing a track day in December or January is not a big deal in California, right? Right. So, um, you know, there it's just like, yeah, it's 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 just kind of a uh, an annual thing versus like an on season and off season kind of thing, I suppose. Yeah, I've heard I have some friends that rent Button Willow out and he'll rent it out and you know, ran out spots to other folks and it's like two seventy five or two fifty for a full day, you know, of like four hours of track time. That's, that's so much track time. And yeah. like, you know, I guess I'm used to living in like grid life universe where it's, it's largely, um, or where there is a big competition component to the, the weekend. And like most of the cars that I am around all the time, I'm not convinced would know what to do or even want to entertain four hours of track time, right? Like yeah. it, that's a, that's a have a separate car just for like doing DE stuff kind of thing. Yeah. Hey, can you hear our pick and place machine running in the background? No, Is I that can't. Uh, no, I can't. Okay. That's it's uh we have a hydraulic uh, pick and place machine in the room across the hall. That's making circuit boards right now. And it's making all sorts of like, hissing and <laughs> crazy noises well maybe it'll come through on the show it won't be any different than having adam on where he's like using an impact driver or like you know hammering a screen door or something he's always yeah he's never not doing something yeah he's he's a busy guy he like i think i'm busy when i when i do like you know we all think we're we're busy and then when i hear adam talk about it i'm like man he's got a lot going on well we recorded a show last night and it'll probably come out uh, I don't know if it'll come out before or after this one, but he said that uh, he was doing something yesterday and he set his phone down for four minutes. And in that four minutes, he got 122 Facebook messages. Yikes. <laughs> he He's like, it's too much. I just can't do it anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's every time I have to, to Facebook message him, I feel really bad because not that long ago, I had to put out like a post on my personal page that was that was kind of saying like, hey, I, re I really appreciate people reaching out to me personally about Apex Pro related stuff. But there are better channels for us to answer your questions and, you know, message our Facebook page or email us at Apex at Apex Track Coach or whatever. And um, that definitely helped cut down on the volume of of messages because I, I really enjoyed like engaging with people, but when it comes to like a very specific question and particularly if it's something that's like an app bug or like something that we need to fix, 
it's very easy to lose it in messenger and be like, Oh man, I was having a conversation yeah. with somebody about well, like, I, I think it lends itself and, to like some kind of help desk or Jira service desk or whatever, like whatever platform you use for ticketing. But like I get questions frequently about sometimes hypothetical builds for uh, you know, XYZ class in grid life. And it's uh, in your email. It is exceedingly difficult to keep track of everything because you get mm -hmm. buried in um, you know, dis despite how much you do, you, you get buried in like junk mail, even if you try to unsubscribe and there's just like, uh, it would be great if I could open a portal and just see like what tickets are open and what things I need to respond to and then close the system, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Cause e email is, it's kind of the same where like, I feel like the electronic and like digital age has gotten to the point now where there's so many different digital communication methods and they all have kind of different pros and cons to them. And, and a lot of it, like, you know, I very regularly am doing something business related with Facebook messenger, probably like Adam to some extent and Instagram DM and stuff like that. But like, it's very hard to, um, to communicate in those mediums when you get to like, um, you know, like when I, when I book coaching days, I don't do it over Facebook messenger, you know, it's a phone call. Sure. Um, and, and that's not that a phone call is easy to document, but, um, when you have a conversation with somebody, it tends to stick in your mind a little bit more so than just like a, a text message or a Facebook thread or, um, so yeah, there's definitely something to be said for like simplifying your forms of communication, but I'm personally not very good at actually doing that. Um, um, and, and this might actually be old fashioned and I'm sure that there's plenty of listeners on the show that will make fun of me for this, but, uh, um, like I'm, as, as many of you probably know, I'm studying for this patent agent exam and I have learned, um, uh, as I'm kind of working through the studying that, uh, writing something with a pencil or pen, uh, onto a sheet of paper does something differently in a lot of people's brain than just like, let's call it mindlessly typing. Uh, so if you're like trying to take a note, um, I don't feel like the note sticks as well. And maybe it's just because I type faster than I can handwrite. But like when I'm taking a note on something, if I write it down with a pencil, it to me like stays in my memory better. And so like I'm trying to change my test taking strategy. I, I gave myself an extension of time for the exam because it is exceedingly difficult. Uh, and I'm going to focus now on taking notes in a notebook with a pen um, just so that like I have everything in my brain because so much of it is like very detailed fact recall. And it's just like, can you memorize these 10,000 facts? Because that's what it takes. Jeez. Yeah. That doesn't sound like fun. I'm kind of the same way with note taking though. And I think I encourage people, um, you know, when I talk about like making notes or, you know, we did a webinar series this winter and the first the first webinar was focused on like debriefing with yourself after you get off track. And I kind of emphasize making notes like on a sheet of paper. Um, you know, some people do it in the notes section of their iPhone or something like that. But for me, it's all about like pen and paper. I have a clipboard. I print out a bunch of track maps before the weekend. I make some notes on the track map. I make some notes on a sheet of paper just to organize my thoughts, you know, and, and that helps that kind of like puts me at peace that I've, that I've, gotten everything out of my brain that needs to come out to under to yeah. like properly debrief with myself. And I think that's the first part of like a successful data review session, whether you're doing it like with a coach or a friend or yourself or whatever, 
is just getting your thoughts out before you start like talking to people, you know, before you and I, like Abe were talking about like, you know, what the track was like that session or how the car felt or whatever. I just want to write my thoughts down and like my concerns with the track and the areas I felt strong just so that I have that documented so that well, I can, I guess it doesn't, that, you know, you know, it, it, it's, I guess it's not a coincidence that I'm coming back to this because when I think about how I studied, uh, when I was a student, I guess that was, um, more than a decade ago now, uh, like all of my undergraduate course materials, I mean, you know, like professors and stuff would hand out notes and handouts and all kinds of, of physical things, uh, during the, the course of, uh, 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 a class for a given semester, but I did everything that I could to try and take my classroom notes in a, like just a simple composition notebook and, uh, for a really long time, especially while I was getting started professionally, I kept those notebooks because, you know, like textbooks um, can, I think, easily be replaced by content that's available on the Internet. But like how you analyze and interpret facts and make those notes, like it was clear to me that if I ever actually needed to look something up and it was something that I had been taught while I was a student, I knew exactly which notebook to go to. And there's like, you know, there's. 50 or a hundred pages of notes there. You just scroll through it. You find it. And like, yeah. that's your resource. Right. It's not like, it's not a resource it's written for, for every you. person, but it's yours. You wrote that down, yeah. you know, it might jog something in your memory. The next time you look at it, that puts you back in that position when you learned it and exactly. you think about it. I do that with my, with my track notes. Like I, I keep all of my, all of my notes, um, whether it's for me or a coaching client, I just have like a manila folder that I put them all in organized by track. And then before you know, like I'm going to VIR in September and I was there last September with the same client. And before we go, I'll go review the notes that, that, you know, he made on the track. Map yeah. The hard part in. with a you know? loose notebook uh, or a loose folder of any kind is that if a, if a loose sheet of paper exists, there is a uh, high, high probability that I will lose that piece of paper and <laughs> yeah. not like deliberately, but I'll just set it down somewhere and then walk away. That, that yeah. like happens. Um, no, that makes sense. And so like having a notebook, at least at a minimum, just kind of keeps, keeps things together. Yeah. Yeah. I totally get that. I probably need to like three hole punch it and put it in a binder. That's what I do with everything else. That's what I do with like all of my, um, so like when we're, um, when I'm, um, uh, coming up with UI changes or suggestions instead of, um, I don't actually manipulate the UI myself, like in the back end, but I, I tend to just like print out like a phone template on a piece of paper and I just draw the UI changes that I want. Here's how I want I, it to look. Yeah. And that, that helps like that really helps communicate to the development team what they want to see. Um, and it has to be really detailed and usually it takes me like five or six drafts before I get to what I think will work really well, but I keep all of those in a binder. So I have them all like three hole punched and I can go back you know, when I'm looking at, especially when I'm thinking about making a change and I'm like, I think we thought about doing that previously and I can go look at what I came up with and decide if it's worth pursuing or not, or it's, there's, there's some real value. And to me, it's like that diffusion process of actually physically writing. It just makes you, when you know that you can't just like hit backspace and erase it, there's something in your brain that makes you think a little more or differently before you put it down on paper. I absolutely you know? agree. Yeah. So uh, we just spent 15 minutes talking about writing stuff down on paper. Um, <laughs> what did you want to talk about? Uh, I figured we would talk about uh, grid life at NCM coming up uh, in 
well, pretty soon. That's coming up so fast, man. I got to get my RV out of storage. It's, uh, it's been parked in my dad's barn since October. Um, it's, uh, I gotta, I gotta do a couple things to get it ready, but, uh, shouldn't be too big a deal, but I'm really looking forward to that event. I love that track. I like driving there. I like being there. And, uh, I know that there are some people that are sad that that place has some sound requirement. Um, but it's really not that big a deal. Yeah, it's not a big deal. 103 decibels is pretty loud. It's true. And I will be the, uh, I, I will say, uh, my unpopular opinion, especially as it relates to like K series GLTC cars. I like the way that K series sound with mufflers on more than I do with mufflers off. I don't like the noise that comes out of a K series. That's just straight pipes. I don't think it's actually it's a good brutal. sound. Yeah, it's kind of a, it's kind of, I mean, the, the BMW, like we have the straight six right now are one of our muffler gaskets or one of the gaskets in the exhaust system. It's like a little three inch exhaust gasket. One of the bolts came out and the uh, gasket fell out and so it had an exhaust leak. So we yanked the muffler off and it sounds absolutely terrible, you know, straight headers. It's an awful noise. I mean, it's, it's really shrill and aggressive and um, it sounds really, you know, kind of, kind of smooth with the muffler on it. You take the muffler off and it just ruins the quality of the sound. Well, and, and maybe you can speak to this as a racer, having driven a bunch of different stuff. But when I had the Evo, when I was trying to street drive it, or, you know, I had this car that I didn't track every single day, I felt like when the exhaust was more open, um, like you get more sensory overload in the car because everything is just so loud. It's really hard to like, focus on maybe other subtle details uh, like with your driving or listening to different parts of the car or paying attention to other things, you know, if you're just being like, if it sounds like you're in a war zone, I guess. Yeah, definitely. I think a lot of folks get, um, and naturally I did this as well, but I think a lot of people love the sensation of like the kind of the aggressiveness of like when you go to wide open throttle and it just sounds like all hell's breaking loose. Um, and there is some like power to that, especially when you first start and you're, you're just like enjoying the fact that you can be at wide open throttle, you know, for 10 or 20 seconds and not break the law. That's really exciting. But then as you start to progress and get better, um, you know, racing a a car and driving it like at its absolute limit is really about having a, um, a very livable place for the driver, like ergonomically, um, very comfortable and very like, allows you to use the car the way that you need to use it. Yeah. Um, well, so there's uh, a, I, a big I, emphasis on I, that. I guess I can speak to my experience at um, Barber with the the Civic, which is, uh, as many of you know, a Mugen Civic that has, um, like, from the factory, a Mugen, um, like, exhaust system. I think it's just, like, a, a cat back with a fancy muffler on it. But, like, it sounds a little different than a standard SI, but it's by no means the sound of an aftermarket exhaust even. And uh, when you have a car that's not extraordinarily loud, it allows you to hear and pay attention to other sounds that might be relevant, right? Like, you know, if, yeah. if the tires are talking to you a little bit, it's very difficult to hear that if it sounds like all hell is breaking loose from the exhaust. Yeah. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with that more. I, th- I think that's a big, I think that's really important. Our, our BMW is actually, it's probably the quietest car in the GLTC field, um, which 
you know, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but you'll hear it at NCM. It doesn't make, it doesn't make much noise, but it's really livable inside. Well, and GLTC is such an interesting case because many cars in the field have to turn power down in order to be legal, right? So like having an open exhaust in many ways doesn't help you very much. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, our, our car is, it's totally a total stock S54 or S52. Um, so it just has like a, you know, cat back, you know, it, well, it doesn't have cats anymore, but it's just got like a straight through muffler on it and a resonator. Um, but it's the, in my opinion, it's like the perfect blend between, I can still hear the engine, you know, when I'm in a pack of cars, so I don't, you know, bang it against the rev limiter. Like if you have a really quiet car, that's kind of the challenge that you run into when you get that sensory overload of being in a pack. Sometimes it's hard to keep up with, you know, if you don't have shift lights or you're not, you know, dialed into what the car feels like. Um, even if you are, that's, that can be tough. Um, so you don't want it to be like a stock, you know, level of sound cause that can be kind of disorienting. But at the same time, I think particularly when you're learning like an HPD world, leaving the completely stock system on the car to, to make, things less dramatic, I think does help you become a better driver because you are, like you're saying, you're going to, you're going to hear the tires. You're going to hear like, you know, the, are the fenders rubbing? You know, what does the car sound like when you hit a curb and you land, you know, do the shocks bottom out? Like, do you, do you hear some things you wouldn't normally hear? Yeah. Uh, because, um, the alternative is just like, you have to, you have to feel everything if you can't hear anything. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And and that can be, you know, honestly, it can be a good like sensory isolation exercise to drive with a super quiet exhaust and still try to hear the, the sound of the car and shift at the right point. And then same thing the other way around, um, you know, kind of like a sensory input session with a super loud exhaust and try to feel the tire and imagine what it would sound like if you can't hear it from the sound of the exhaust. Um, those are actually kind of good ways to like eliminate the auditory sense and, and also, and then like give it back, you know, um, if you're like looking to get really granular with how to improve like specific senses to understand what the car is doing. So I think, uh, on that note, we're going to, uh, pause this episode because I've got a waking baby and we're going to take this time to thank our partners, apex pro and FCP Euro. And we're going to pick this up at another time where we can talk more specifically about what the Apex Pro car is going to be doing at NCM. That sounds great. Just bought a bunch of parts from FCP Euro as well. So thanks to those guys. Uh, I'll talk to you soon, Andrew. All Sounds good. Welcome back to part two of the Slip Angle podcast with Apex Pro's Andrew Rains. Hey, Andrew. How are you today? Hey, Good. How are you? How did your uh, your afternoon end up going yesterday after we uh, recorded the first half? Oh, not not too bad. Uh, I literally just rolled around on the floor with uh, Sloan like for five hours. The babies are uh, pretty easy to entertain, actually. She uh, she gets the most joy in life about just like if you flip her upside down and like kind of hold her by her hips upside down. She's just like super into that. So uh, it's it's pretty easy to keep her entertained. <laughs> Sounds like a good time. I think we had just started to talk about um, what we're doing to the uh, the Apex Pro BMW for GLTC, and then and then you had to go. So uh, I, uh, if you're not already following Apex Pro and Andrew on Instagram, you should probably do that. He posts uh, regularly 
uh, about GLTC, like car stuff and also data stuff. And uh, you, I think, had the diff out of your car recently and you're doing a whole bunch of other stuff. Give me, give me the list. Yep. Yeah. A whole bunch of stuff. Um, but fortunately nothing, um, nothing like, uh, the car's pretty durable and pretty reliable and it was built really well. So kind of the, the background on our car is it's a, um, a 97 E36 M3 and it was built, it was converted from a street car to a BMW club race car, which was a pretty stock class. Like it could run slicks, but it had like, you know, it was really heavy, um, and didn't really have a lot of leeway. Like the, the diff had to be totally stock transmission stock motor, completely stock, but it's got like poly bushings and MCS single adjustable shocks and, um, all the, all the good stuff, you know, baffling in the oil pan, all the stuff to make it like a proper race car. But as it's evolved into a WRL GP one car and now a GLTC car, it's required a lot of massaging to get the most out of it. So we've, um, Basically, at GLTC and NOLA, we kind of exposed some of the handling issues and um, other things that we could capitalize on within the GLTC rules. So now we're kind of what, trying to uh, massage on that. Uh, as you were at NOLA, what was, um, in your mind, the things that were limiting you as a driver in that class? The biggest thing is the balance of the car. And this is something we've struggled with on 200 treadwear tires, too. But we run a, um, a big front sway bar as most E36s do, um, and then a stock rear sway bar, which if you're familiar with the geometry on an E36, uh, the, the rear sway bar stock is not in a super effective location, so it's it's barely doing anything from the factory, really. Um, so most, most people reinforce like where the sway bar mounts, and then they mount it slightly differently to get more effect. So basically, we just have a really understeer oriented setup unless you're on like brand new tires so as soon as the tires start to wear the balance go like goes towards understeer really substantially um so, so qualifying, what, what is the logic then for running such a large front bar could you not um you know like tone that down a little bit to get things to be a little bit more neutral um yeah yeah i mean theoretically you could so the um i own the car with three other guys and we're all pretty price sensitive and and try to be very um you know only buy the stuff that we that we really need and i've been trying to to optimize the least expensive things first and now i've gotten to the point where really the option is to buy a smaller front bar or add a better rear bar and a more adjustable rear bar and then we'll save up and do the front bar. Um, so I've purchased a, a rear sway bar to put on the car. Cause the big thing, I think, especially running R sevens for NCM, the, um, the sway bar itself in the front is not necessarily too stiff. It's mainly the balance between the front and rear bars. Like the front has a lot of roll stiffness and the rear has very little comparatively. Um, so I think that will help incrementally. And then ultimately we'll go to a smaller front bar, but we couldn't stomach the cost of buying both. Um, so that's, that's probably the biggest like balance change that I think well, will make you a had some, difference. some really good success on the supercar three R's at NOLA. What, uh, what's the thought process for wanting to change to R seven at NCM specifically? Yeah. Well, the, the main thought process, I mean, it's a lot of subjective information. Um, but the, the main thought process is that we, 
were a little slower mid corner everywhere than just about every other car that we raced around, which just points to mechanical grip, you know, mechanical grip disadvantage. Um, but also the stock fenders on an E36 can only, can only really fit like a 245, maybe a 255 uh, width tire without rolling fenders and adding flares. And at this point, kind of like I said before, it's, it's a car that we own with our team and we're kind of trying to, I guess we do one thing at a time. We don't make sure. a whole bunch of changes. Um, so we kind of wanted to keep the stock fenders for now. So, so really it's, the only it's not that option. you think that the, uh, the street tire is necessarily inferior in the tire table, but rather uh, you're not allowed or you're not able to take full advantage of the allowable width in a street tire. Right. So the, the slick make, makes more sense. Yeah, exactly. We could run a 275 um, Goodyear Supercar 3R, which I think I think would probably make it really competitive um, with the R7. Um, like I, you know, I, I don't have any data on that, but I think we could make that package work, and it would also play to our advantage because we have a pretty substantial torque advantage coming out of the corner um, because of the the straight six and the way it delivers power. It's got a nice linear torque curve, um, just by their nature, you know compared to most of the four-cylinder cars that we race. So that really is what necessitated R7s was just the fact that we can't fit any more tire under the fender, uh, and we needed a little more a more mechanical grip mid-corner. So hopefully between that and then sorting out the balance a little bit with the sway bars, I think that'll help incrementally. And then the, um, the upgrade that you mentioned was just because we have a – it has a factory. So th- these cars come with LSDs. You know, it has a clutch-style limited slip. Um, it's a two clutch diff. So we just added a, a third clutch to the diff to get more aggressive lockup. Um, and that was really because that's a fairly inexpensive option if you do it yourself, um, which we did, um, which I can't say I, I did anything. Mitch Cobb is our um, car chief and he's he's really the mechanical genius behind everything. So he pulled the diff out and installed the clutch. Um, but I think that'll play to our, to the car's advantage because where we were really able to race people at NOLA was apex out, um, you know, putting the power down in third and fourth gear. We just got out of the corner better, um, than most of the other cars. Um, so that's what we're trying to capitalize on. I think with slicks and with the diff upgrade, um, and then we also actually made some updates to the splitter, um, which Mitch told me to mention that he's irritated by the splitter rules and um and gltc compared to other series and i told him that's just what you have to deal with man (laughs) (laughs) yeah uh surprisingly so i'm i'm heavily involved in the competition rulebook for the time attack portion of grid life but i am remarkably uninvolved with the rules uh in gltc uh save for me reading them when they're done and just asking about hey does this make sense um, because Adam has uh, is in the lead and has a rules committee for that. Uh, that he he solicits um, like people all over the wheel to wheel series, including or like the wheel to wheel community um, that extends far beyond grid life, right? Just people that he's known with other organizations for forever uh, to try to build the most. Um, the most parity in the series as possible and also, uh, you know, build the place that as many cars can run as possible. Yeah. Um, I, I like it a lot. I think the GLTC rule set is, I mean, it's super simple and it works. So what was the, uh, the critique of the splitter rule? 
what was the the technical element there? I think the um, so the front bumper, and it's really, I mean, he's not actually serious when he says that. It's more because of the way our car is, but the front bumper of the car has a weird profile to it. So you kind of have to like, per the GLTC rules, you follow the front follow profile. Follow the profile. The front, right. So it has this little bump in the front. Like if you look down on it, it kind of bumps, it like kind of juts out like an extra inch in the front to follow the profile of the bumper. Well, you know, um, you could say that uh, you could make it a, a big sweeping arc if you wanted to, as long as you were inside the, uh, the, the distance limitation, right? Right. But if you want every advantage, then you got to do the extra work. Yeah, we got that big old uh, nine lives uh, wing on the back, so we need every bit of front downforce that we can get. So we're, we're going to keep playing with the front end and try to make it I think particularly at a track like NCM, um, it's going to help us to have the, um, the aero working really well. Um, so I think I think it'll be an improvement with some of the adjustments that we made on the splitter. Now, have um, you ever had that car at NCM before? Nope, never have. I'll, I probably only have a dozen laps at NCM. I just I just love driving at that place so much. It's super cool, and it's weird, right? Because I think. Uh, sometimes people can be intimidated by, you know, the, the Armco and the concrete that's around. And that place for me, unlike uh, road Atlanta, that place, like, I don't think about hitting anything ever. It just is it's like not something that's on my mind. Whereas when I'm at road Atlanta, it's like, Oh my God, don't hit anything. Everything's <laughs> yeah. so close. Um, road Atlanta's kind of intimidating. I, I feel that way at NCM too. I don't have that, um, that reservation. But what, what I will say about NCM, and I was actually talking to um, Ed Colazzo about this earlier today, but it's just a, it's a lot of corners, you know, it's like Coda, it's, it's 20 plus turns and um, there's not a great differentiation in sight lines at NCM. The track kind of visually, there's not, um, it's not like road Atlanta where you have all of the, or like mid Ohio, where you have all of the billboards and like the professional race, you know, insignia around the track and the tree lines and, stuff like that. NCM's kind of on this plot of land where, you know, you're going to turn five and your line of sight is kind of similar to going into 16. And it's easy to confuse those two if you're not, if you're not really experienced there. So like sure. even the the 10 laps that I've done, you know, it's, it's, I really only got it figured out. Most tracks, like I would say that because I've driven so many tracks now, it's, it's fairly easy to kind of assimilate information from previous tracks you've driven and just be like, Oh yeah, this is a corner. I've done this corner somewhere else before. Right. And you kind of apply that driving style or however you would approach it to that, this new turn. But with NCM, there are several situations where I was like, I really haven't done something like this before. Um, and it took me longer to figure it out. So the, uh, the, the corners, um, certain corners on tracks, uh, give me the willies. And usually those are, um, those really like high speed, uh, corners that you don't get a ton of experience with if you're on the smaller club tracks, but, uh, five, especially, um, I, when driving consistently over break, uh, given the amount of speed that you can carry there. Um, I've seen people, uh, just go into five at like between 90 and 110 or something like it's a, it's an yeah. insanely fast corner. Um, but it's kind of scary because you're staring at the wall, um, like <laughs> yeah. while you're making that turn, it's, it's, it's really weird. Um, but it is very fast. It's, it's super fast. I have a lot of data from NCM from customers and, uh, you know, a, a really pr pretty much, I don't want to say any car, but 
it's it's very close to a hundred mile per hour corner on any type of good tire um if if done properly you know and and that's not a blanket statement across the board there's some cars that have way more grip that can go faster than that and then there's some that are heavy and on a smaller tire or whatever that are slower but it's um it, it's that kind of corner where you need to commit to throttle early um and you want to have the platform nice and stable coming into the corner you know there's like a there's kind of a big hesitation from your speed adjustment to your throttle application depending on how much speed you're carrying uh and that's one of those places where it's you just want to stabilize the car and i'm, I'm looking forward to um to our car in that space because at nola our car was just super compliant in the high speed stuff like i just wasn't quite as fast as a couple of the front runners but i could really get away with with kind of abusing the car a little bit there just because the balance is so good at high speed so i think that'll play to my advantage personally just like learning the track but we're also going up there for an ncm uh, member day in early april to run some laps and that'll help try out the new sway bar so the yeah. the other corner that i think is a lot of fun but really challenging and um different from a lot of places that i've driven is is like the braking zone right after full rouge at 15 um mm -hmm. because it's it's this weird spot where you're you're kind of trying to brake while you're in a turn. Right. And so like you can try and get your braking done straight and then turn in or you can do some combination of turning and braking, but it's like to me it feels like a really unusual corner because you don't often see that. Yeah, you you really have to respect the limitations of the friction circle in those types of corners. Um and you know on on stickier tires and with aero those limits are higher but but you still have to um be more delicate. You know how your initial brake application is kind of this sharp, aggressive transition when you're in a straight line. But when you're going into a corner like that, where you're, you have lateral load in the car, um, and there's a couple places at NCM like that, you kind of have to respect that transition a little more and you have to have softer feet, you know, to take advantage of that rolling speed. Cause that, that corner you're talking about, Abe is um, it's pretty fast. Like there's some, there's some uh, cambering, like, you know, if, if you get right up against the curb on the right, the track kind of cameras up and it's it's kind of an entry speed corner because there's not a lot of, you know, full throttle afterwards before you break again to go into the sinkhole. Um, so that's a, that's an opportunity corner for sure for lap time. I think whoever is on pole there will be properly quick through that section. The um, the corner that I think is is interesting and fun is like 19 and 20. Um, especially in like the the rear wheel drive cars have a tendency like really really having to keep the back of the car in check because you've got like you know the the rear of the car can get light as you drop into the sinkhole and like your application of power on your way through 20 into 21 has mm -hmm. to be like really delicate but also even though that looks like a large radius corner um, it's remarkably low speed like I think 45 or something like that is a decent speed on your way through 20. Yeah, that's a, that's a tricky section. You know, that, that's a place that, that I, um, I didn't feel like I optimized when I drove the track. So I've, I've only driven probably five dry laps at NCM at this point and a bunch of other laps in the wet. Um, and so I never really optimized. I just didn't have as much confidence in playing around and I was driving, you know, somebody else's expensive car trying to learn the track so I'm, I'm really excited to go play around with it more and be in a car that I I'm super comfortable with and I can, you know, drive it at the limit and just kind of, um, 
you know, go through that learning process. Like as much time as I spend coaching other drivers and trying to get in people's heads, I'm really trying to use this opportunity in GLTC to like remind myself, you know, one, remind myself why I love this, um, but also remind myself how I learn um, and try to improve, you know, using Apex Pro as my primary tool and also just getting the most out of the car, you know, getting the balance right. And we'll be making sway bar changes and damper changes throughout the weekend to try to go faster. And certainly learning the R7s will be different. You know, I've, I've asked around for tire pressures and stuff like that. And uh, oh, I almost forgot we went from an eight and a half inch to a nine inch wheel. So the team bought some new wheels um, because we were we were running a pretty small wheel for a 245. And now on the 225 R7s, which are equivalent to 245 and anything else, I think we're going to get a little more effective contact patch with a slightly wider wheel. Well, that's good. So, um, hopefully, hopefully we've got a good a good package. I mean, we're you know we're right in the range of um, you know we could bump up to like 29.51 minimum weight. You know, put another 50 60 pounds in the car, and we could run even more tire <laughs> under the car. Which doesn't help us because we can't fit. You can't but, fit it, right? Um, yeah, there, there's there's a lot of room. I mean, the car is still far, far from optimized um, for GLTC, and uh, but I think um, I think we'll have a fairly competitive package. I, you know, I I think GLTC will be really well subscribed there, and there's some guys that are local that are super fast there. So I don't expect kind of like going into NOLA. I have I have no expectations of a good performance, but just trying to have You'll fun. You'll be pleasantly surprised if you do. So I have, I have a data related question um, as it relates to apex pro. When I think about using a data tool like that, I think most commonly in, you know, HPDE drivers looking to improve their overall lap time. And of course in time attacker qualifying, when you're trying to, to maximize the absolute pace of the car in a, racing situation in a wheel-to-wheel event, how do you use your data tool um, to to help you go faster in that context? Well, you know, the, the first part of the weekend is really spent optimizing for qualifying, you know, whether we run on Friday or just to practice, you know, on Saturday. So in that sense, you're, you're looking for kind of the more traditional application, like you said, which is just ultimate lap time. Um, and I do that in a lot of different ways, um, but I try to keep it simple. Like I, I study the data ahead of time. If, if I don't have data, I look at someone else's data for the track and I try to get a sense for minimum corner speeds. And then I try to make a bunch of notes on track maps to understand, you know, gearing um, just to take that out of my, out of my mind. Like I already know what gear I'm going to be in for every corner, except for like two at NCM right now. And so I'll validate that once I get there. Um, and that's kind of more just like subjective data, you know, making, making notes and understanding it. And then the big thing that I'll be doing is um, seeing where I'm consistent and inconsistent with sector times as I'm learning the track. And usually your inconsistencies are going to show the areas where you're not comfortable or that you haven't figured out. Um, so I'll define some sectors and then I'll basically zero in on my, my priority sectors and say, you know, these are the areas that I'm struggling with for pace. Um, so that'll be kind of my learning process, um, starting from there. And then obviously kind of the basics of, you know, am I using all the grip with, uh, the friction circle and subsequently the apex pro lights? Like, am I leaving a lot of red lights on the table in any particular corners? And if I am, why am I doing that? Um, that's, that's a really big one. Um, in a racing environment, I mean, in a lot of ways you're using it the same way, 
because um, you're trying to maximize pace. Um, in a racing environment, you're going to have more benefit from video to see, you know, from a racecraft perspective to analyze your performance. Um, but I think a lot of um, there's a lot of performance and there's a lot of like, you know, you can have a lot of success going really quickly, you know, right off the start and getting to the limit of the car, even, even when you're in traffic, because you kind of get this herd mentality when you're racing. Like if you're, if you're pretty quick and you're mid pack, you know, part of the reason you're mid pack is because you're mid pack, right? Like you get, you get stuck behind the car that's in front of you to some extent, and you let others around you naturally as a human, others, other people's limitations or their driving limitations or lack of confidence in the car or tires um, may prevent you from going as quickly as you can. Sure. So a lot of times I'll look at race data at the start of the race and just say, you know, my first couple of laps, was I really challenging the, the tire? You know, was I, is my friction circle nice and bowed? Was my apex score decent? Was I seeing red lights places that I, that I normally wasn't because I'm going to be offline. And so a lot of what I'm looking for is ways to build confidence, driving the car offline. So I'm going in, you know, on the inside three wide into turn one, is there any grip there? Did I still over slow when I was way offline? Um, so some things that are kind of blending some more racecraft elements, because if I know that, you know, if I know, okay, race one, you know, we have four races in GLTC to, to analyze this stuff. So I may see that I went offline into turn one in, in race one and that I braked way too early to make the corner and compromise it appropriately. Um, and so that may give me confidence on the start of race two to go, hey, I can go significantly deeper on the brakes in one with, before I run out of, out of grip. Gotcha. Um, and there's a lot of other different ways, but just – you know, for sake of the, uh, for this format and for explaining it, that's, that's a good example of one thing that I would look at that's pretty race specific. And then I, I use a GoPro as well. Um, and I try to look at it. Usually I don't end up having the time, you know, by the time you, it only takes a few minutes, right. But by the time I actually like sit down, pull the SD card, put it in the computer, find the right file, you know, I've already been pulled five different ways and I think most people are the same. So what I tend to do is I, I do like a debrief before, like I take my helmet off, I sit in the car, I ask um, Mitch or someone else to bring me my notepad. And then I look at my data and I make notes kind of at the same time um, after every session. With a pen or pencil, which uh, ties us yeah. back to part one of this episode. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't get, and I do make some notes in the app, uh, like in the Apex app, there's notes on individual laps and on sessions. And sometimes I'll make notes like usually if we make a shock change, I note that, or if we make a big tire pressure change or something I want to know about, I'll add that. So I have it, have record of that, you know, in my data, but otherwise I, I come in and I notate a track map usually before I even look at the data, I'm making some notes on like subjectively, where did I feel good? Where did I not feel good? And then I validate that with the data. So I, I, a lot of times I'll be like, man, I'm really not confident in this one corner. Right? I don't know what I'm doing here. And I look at the data and I'm the fastest there that I've been all weekend. Right. So that's a good thing to know. It's like, okay, maybe I shouldn't be as concerned. Maybe that's not really my area of focus. And all I'm trying to do with this, this like process is, find one thing to focus on and eliminate everything else for the time being, gotcha. you know, find the biggest area of improvement because that's all, that's all we really want to task ourselves with. If we actually want to go faster, that's what we need to focus on. 
So we're kind of just eliminating these things using the data. It's like, nope, this looks good. This looks good. This looks good. Oh man, my sector time is really inconsistent here. I'm seeing red lights in turn five constantly, right? There's big opportunity there. And it's in a racing environment, in a qualifying environment, it's nice to be able to put a number there. Like, you know, my my best sector time is 12 seconds, you know, 12.3 seconds. And my slowest sector time is 14.6 seconds, right? There's over two seconds of variability. I need to figure that out. Right. Um, that type of thing is really, is really helpful for me. So, um, from your experience at NOLA with your car, um, you talked about trying to really, uh, push pace in the first couple of laps and, and, you know, get everything you can out of the setup of the car. Um, at least on the, uh, street tires, how did you notice, um, like the need to manage, let's say, tire temperature during the race, and how did that affect your overall strategy? I uh, actually, the first two races at NOLA, I didn't notice any tire fall off at all on the good years. Uh, so I, and I had noticed that in qualifying, I was able to do my my first or second flyer was my fastest lap, but then I did two laps after that within actually on the same 10th, they were like, you know, a couple hundredths of a second off. Yeah. That's pretty consistent. Yeah. I recognized the tire was consistent over like, you know, 15 minute session. So I knew I could thrash the tire pretty hard, but by race three and four, the tires were starting to fall off. So I had to conserve a little more. So I might, based on what I've learned about the R7 so far, I'll probably be a little more conservative um, in the first two races, as far as like, just trying not to really abuse the tire um, and and not slide it to death. You know, just try to try to be a little more disciplined with slip angle um, to keep the temperatures in check, so I can have a car in race four. Um, because race four is usually the inverted grid, and I really struggled with the inverted um, grid. I, I wasn't able to make a lot of spots. I just didn't have a lot of pace, and part of that was tires. Part of that was we were really I wasn't really any faster than the cars behind me most of the weekend. Gotcha. Um, so yeah, that, that's kind of my approach. But we we have a I got a um, a scrub set of slicks that I found for really cheap from a friend, and then um, a new set of R7. So hopefully the R7s will last for all the GLTC sessions. You know, the practice qualifying, and then race sessions. So um, what I've heard, um, and I don't know if this applies to all cars or just front wheel drive or, or what, but uh, um, I've heard that consistently people consume on average about two tires per race weekend for GLTC. Do you think that your um, usage will kind of fall in line with that? Probably so. That's, that's, that's probably about right. We, you know, we have so little experience with this car on sticky tires. It's mostly been on Hankook RS4s, the, the kind of ubiquitous 200 tread wear endurance tire. Um, so I really don't know. I mean, if, on those tires, uh, the car just doesn't use any tire, and that's that's usually the case for RS4s. They just last and last. And the Goodyears, I've heard, are pretty similar to slicks in a lot of ways. Um, I've heard, you know, the Goodyears pretty much lasted the full weekend, so we might not even go out on the stickers in the practice session. We might save the stickers for qualifying, and then I've, I've just got to be disciplined in qualifying. This has never been my strength because I didn't come up through time attack. You know, I came up through wheel to wheel and I started doing endurance racing, you know, a long time ago. So I've got a really good, I can get into a really good rhythm and I can manage the car really, really well. If I'm, 
especially if I'm being communicated with, you know, um, properly from pit lane as well, you know, like, um, someone that I can, can go back and forth with to understand what the pace needs are. Like, do I need to go faster? Do I need to go slower? Should I manage tire? Should I manage fuel? I so have a good that, ability I think to do that's that. an interesting, uh, point to talk about then. If you go out on your scrubs in practice and you spend your time trying to figure out your pace, um, but then you put on stickers for qualifying, certainly it must take you a lap or two to figure out how much extra performance is, is available because of the new tires, right? You can't just go out yeah. and do it on lap one. Right. Yeah, and, and that's where my conflict comes in a little internally with trying to decide what we're going to do because I, I just can't afford more tires, you know, so it's hard to um, – part of it's just like, all right, tough luck. You know, you gotta, you just got to go send it and and – make some logical assumptions that the tires are going to be a little stickier. And fortunately I have a lot of um, experience on the Pirelli uh, DH and DHH slick, which are both super high grip, you know, don't last very long types of, of racing tires, you know, just pure racing slicks, not DOT slicks. And I'm comfortable with the commitment level from those tires, or at least I was a few years ago, but I've done, Man, since the last time I was on slicks, I've done so much more car control work and driving and coaching and have so much more experience, not only driving, but just understanding driving. So I have good confidence that I can be there, but I'm I'm not the um I'm not the type of driver that's gonna get, you know, ninety-nine point nine nine percent out of the car on the first lap. I'll definitely need a flyer at least to get comfortable. Yeah. Um, on, on I mean, slicks. you know, I feel like the, the only word to describe those people, cause they, they do exist. I'm sure that, you know, um, they're just, they're just aliens, right? Like they can just jump in and it's, you know, it's, it's like a fish into water. Um, but I know other drivers who are incredibly fast, but work their way up to pace. Yeah, definitely. That's, that's always been my style. And, and part of what I'm trying to learn to do better with GLTC is forcing myself to, uh, to generate pace more quickly. And I was, I was pretty happy with that at NOLA, to be honest, like my, my, you know, second or third lap was my fastest time in qualifying. And I felt like that was, you know, when, when I was racing in world challenge running on the slicks, I was never able to optimize the tire during qualifying because it took me three or four laps before I would set a fast lap. And really the tire needed to go fast on lap two or three. Um, and I have a feeling the R7 will be the same, but I, I feel a little bit better about my ability to actually do that. So I'm, I'm a little conflicted. We'll probably put a heat cycle on the, on the new tires at the test that we do. So I might actually just run, you know, a session to get a, a sense for the commitment level of the stickers during the test. And that way I at least have like some internal calibration. Sure, I can, yeah. you know, recall for qualifying. Well, I think, uh, I think you've got a pretty good plan. Um, any other changes coming up for the car after this race or are things that you still have yet to do? Uh, I think the car's probably going to stay more or less in the, in the, in the current kind of build state. Um, the team, the guys that I own it with are going to take it to VIR in September for an endurance race. Um, and I, I've got a full season of coaching for endurance racing. And then um, I'm actually planning to come to some more grid life events to run GLTC. Good. Um, so I'm, I'm very excited. And thanks to shout out to, uh, to Bill Griffin for the invite to come uh, drive his car with him. Uh, it's a Specky 46. 
Um, so I'll be doing some driving and coaching at a couple more grid life rounds this year. So I won't be, be bringing our car, which, um, you know, I love, I love the development process and I love figuring out how to make the car faster. So I, I would love to race our car more, but, um, that just makes a lot more sense for both Bill and I, and I think it'll be a lot of fun. So, um, you having had quite a bit more endurance experience, but also the pro racing experience, um, how do you how do you mentally prepare for a GLTC race? Is it different from you know jumping in the car for a multi-hour stint? Um, to be honest, not really, uh, and it, and that might take some people by surprise because the format is so different. But the way that I that I approach endurance racing is uh, I'm our car is really substantially built. You know, it's it's capable, and unless unless I'm getting in the car just to bring it home or under certain circumstances, I'm, I'm trying to produce the most lap time that I possibly can, uh, and produce a, basically a, a very fast average lap time, um, in a two hour stint. Like you want, uh, to minimize your, uh, loss and, and impact of traffic. Um, and you really just want to make good passing decisions, um, and, and still be able to drive the car at the limit. So, um, honestly, the, the, the mentality is not super different. I would just say that the, the priority or the focus, um, you have to, you have to weigh risk versus reward a little differently in GLTC. You kind of need to make the move when it, when the opportunity presents itself in endurance racing, obviously you want to, you want to be a little more, um, I don't want to say hesitant, hesitating is always bad, but you want to be more conservative with the moves that you do make. You want to be really sure that the other drivers are aware of your position and where you are. And with GLTC, you want to, you want to do the same, but you want to make the move now. So there's just a little different emphasis, but I would say as far as driving the car and the tire at the limit, I'm one of those, I'm one of the believers in the idea that um, if you're driving the car at its limit, whether it's in an endurance race or a, or a sprint race, you know, you're, you're doing everything to get the most lap time out of the car that you can. And that also includes taking care of the equipment. So, you know, not hitting curbs that damage the car, not, um, you know, bumping into any other cars, uh, not, you know, braking in such a way that slows the car down most efficiently, um, you know, being smooth to an extent with the inputs, um, but smooth to the extent that you're still utilizing all the tires grip. Um, so, you know, I think ultimate lap time is slightly more important, but I would still say that you're going to end up at the front in GLTC. If you're your average of the say five laps that we do at at NCM is the fastest of anybody on the track. You know, you can't do a, you know, just for round numbers sake, you can't do a two minute lap time that's your fastest lap. And then the rest of your laps are like two Oh fives because you're managing traffic. You need to do a two Oh two every lap right? or whatever it is, you know, in order to be at the front. And I think that's still, that's still what's important. And that's how I've, you know, kind of worked with the guys that I do endurance racing with. And even the drivers that I coach, we try to focus because everybody gets caught up on fastest lap, right? Cause especially if you come from time attack or autocross, that's what it's about. Right. Um, but in road racing, it's about finishing first. It's about being the first across the line and you don't have to have the fastest lap to do that. Um, and sometimes people are so willing to drive the car or not willing. They're just, you know, it's, it's easy to chase lap time cause you want to go faster and well, that's an easy path. I think that's right? an important point to make. Uh, you don't need the fastest lap necessarily to win, but the the opposite is also true. Just because the you have the fastest lap does not mean that you will win. I think I was going through the uh, race hero data from the the race at Coda 
two weeks ago. And pretty consistently, the driver who had the fastest lap was not the person in the front. Yeah. That's, that's usually, I mean, you see that in Formula One too. You know, it's because there's somebody in the field and usually it's because they're motivated to catch another car that they lay down, you know, a wicked fast lap. Um, and if that's your if that's your focus, it's really easy to put yourself in a position where a car in front of you controls your minimum corner speed because you're not going to, if you're managing traffic, whether you're in an endurance race or in a single class format like GLTC, if you're managing traffic, then you have to have the presence of mind to give up a little bit, give up a little bit of pace, break early, let out of the throttle early, do whatever to manage the gap to the car in front of you to make an efficient pass. Um, and that's, that's just how, that's how passing works, right? It's kind of a give and take. If you have a run on the car in front of you and you catch them in the middle of a slow corner, that's kind of a single lane corner. Well, you just cost yourself lap time, right. you know, and a lot of times, a lot of lap time. And so the way that I think about it, um, particularly after hosting a webinar with my buddy, Robbie Foley, who's a full-time IMSA driver, he used the words, don't let the car in front of you control your minimum corner speed. Um, meaning that you don't want to follow so closely to the car in front of you that you have to conform to their speed in the corner. You want to drive your own race. So you need to leave a gap that's, that allows you to close the gap to the other car and make a pass in a place where you can actually make a pass, which is usually on a straightaway or in a braking zone. Right. Um, and that's a, that's probably my strength as a driver is my traffic management. And I think that's why, I think that's why personally I stand a good chance in most wheel to wheel environments of doing pretty well, because I, I tend to think that way and I'm not focused on uh, just, you know, setting a fast lap because that's not what, that's not what creates results. That's not what wins, uh, what wins a race. I'm a little more focused on track position, position relative to other cars um, and managing the, managing the gap for an efficient pass. Well, I won't, uh, I won't ask you to share all of your strategy for NCM, but as I look at the track map, I'm curious what your thoughts are on where you think your optimal places to pass might be. You know, I, that's, the track map, like the next one that I need to, uh, to jot some notes down on. Cause I really haven't thought a ton about it. Um, and that, that sounds, that sounds silly, but I, I think it's, uh, <laughs> well, you, I really still don't have, know. you still have a little time, I suppose. Yeah. I think turn one, you know, right there in front of the building before the chicane is, is a obvious, uh, excellent passing zone and the track's fairly wide because of the curbing. So I think you'll see a lot of passing, uh, on the opening lap and the first couple of laps going into one, um, and then if you're quick and you can you can get up to pace, there's a good opportunity to, to kind of stretch a gap there because the turn three braking zone is not very substantial. You know, it's a pretty short braking zone. Right. Um, going from 90 to 50 miles an hour. Um, and then you kind of have that infield section of the track, the intersection, which is kind of from five to, um, you know, deception. Um, and then obviously you can make a pass there at 10, the really tight, right. you know, left-hander. Um and then probably, you know, going into the into the uh, sinkhole, which would be like, you know, the 18, kind of 19 complex yeah. if you get a nose inside. Um, and then the last one would be getting a run out of the S's onto the front straight. That's an obvious one, you know, where you kind of back up the corner, use a little more curb than the guy in front of you, prioritize the exit, get a run down the straightaway. Yeah. Um, which so, I think we might, I mean, we might be able to do that. Um, I actually kind of struggled on top end power compared to like Luke uh, McGrew and a couple of the S two thousands. I had I had low end torque, but they had me on V Max, you know, down the straightaway. So I don't know if that'll 
if that'll really work for us or not. I think turn one will probably be turn well, you, one, turn you three. You talked about how wide turn, turn one is. I'm, I'm going to say this because I actually don't know the answer, but I know typically in an HBE, the fast line is basically like jumping the curb on the right side of the track. Um, and I'll be curious to know what our race director says, uh, what, if any, track limits will be in place there at 1A. Because I imagine things are going to be kind of open uh, at the start of the race, but I'm, I'm curious to know if uh, a track limit will be imposed there uh, later on. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised because you can pretty easily kind of get all four tires up on those curbs. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it... But I guess uh, if you do impose a track limit there, you kind of necessarily give everyone the same disadvantage if the, the prime line that you want to take is all four tires on the other side of that curbing. Yeah. I think um, I've been to a couple of races with other groups at NCM. I've never raced wheel-to-wheel -wheel at NCM before, but it is definitely not to the extent like mid-Ohio is like a, a, a single-file track, but there's definitely parts of it that – are just most efficient single file and you need to be kind of discerning about where to make passes. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if the fastest cars at the front are kind of lead follow for 80% of the lap um, to make, you know, to make pace. And I think you can very easily see one or two cars run away from the field if they get clear air and they can, you know, go quickly through the first, you know, third of the track on lap one. Um, so I, I do think qualifying will be pretty important. Yeah, I, I'm given the the track in places can lend itself to single file driving. I'll be really interested to see how the results of the inverted grid in race four uh, will stick relative to like you know some of those uh, leaders in previous races. Are they going to be able to make enough passes to get back to the front? Yeah, yeah, it'll, it'll be interesting, man. I mean, NOLA was kind of that way with the back half of the track being kind of more or less single file. So it was kind of hard to, um, you know, there's just certain places where you have to be pretty assertive if you want to make those moves. So I, I think it'll just place a higher value on just like any track and, and with GLTC being so competitive, but there'll just be a really high value placed on really good racecraft. And so that's, that's kind of my focus going into it is um, – where do I know I can make clean passes? Where are some higher risk areas where if I trust somebody, I can make a pass? Um, and where are some areas where I want to I want to plan to be single file so that I'm not trying to make a pass because I'll just disadvantage myself? I think that's to get the thought process, you know, to go through. Like the S is at the end of the lap. Nobody's, nobody's going to really make a pass in that section of the track, right? Like right. it's just – you're better off letting up early to try to get a run on the exit and make a pass into turn one. Right. So you want to, you want to kind of have, I try to have like a mental playbook, particularly for a track that I don't know well um, for like almost triggers at certain points on the lap, not like, Oh, I need to make a pass here, you know, but if I need to make a pass in turn one, the opportunity for me to think about how I'm going to make that pass is probably on the back straight between deception and 16, you know, the tabletop straight. Um, like that's how far ahead I need to be thinking about making a pass if it's against a car that's a similar pace. So I know turn one's a good passing opportunity. That's when I need to start planning that pass. So now I might value my exit out of the S's a little differently. Maybe I'm following really closely to this car going into 16 and I don't quite need to be that close because he could back me up or she could back me up coming out of the sinkhole. 
um, because smart racers can do that. Like if I, if I know someone is faster than me and we're going into the sinkhole, I'm going to back them up coming out of the sinkhole. Right? Yeah. Like I'm going to, I'm going to delay my throttle application so that they get delayed. And then I'm going to stretch, you know, I'm going to slinky effect a little bit. I'm going to, I'm going to stretch it out. It's just like traffic. Right. Yeah. Right. So I think those types of things, you know, and then another good place would be to plan between three and five. You have a nice long straightaway where you can breathe. You know, you want to plan, you're not going to make a pass going into five because there's no speed Delta there. Right. It's, it's a hundred and, 10 miles an hour to hundred miles an hour. Right. But there's a couple of corners after that, where if there's a speed difference, you can make a pass, uh, an opportunistic pass, or you could plan to set up a pass into 10. So anytime you're on those straightaways, you kind of want to have like a mental trigger that reminds yourself to be thinking ahead for the next passing opportunity. Well, uh, we're 45 minutes into part two, which I think lends itself to a complete show with uh, the addition of part one. Uh, what, if anything regarding Apex Pro, do you want to talk about before we close out this episode? Uh, there's lots of cool stuff coming. I can't share any of it yet, but if you're going to be at GLT, if you're going to be at Gridlife at NCM, uh, you will probably uh, get to hear all sorts of cool announcements about um, some some pretty major changes that we're making and some updates that we're making. And I'm excited to uh, eventually share those. And if you're going to be there, make sure to come find us. We'll have a big Apex Pro tent set up probably have our TV set up. I'll have other folks on hand to help me um, look at folks' data, troubleshoot any issues, and help you find time on the track. So just come find the Apex Pro tent and ask us some questions, uh, and we want to help you go faster. And uh, where can people find you on the Internet? ApexTrackCoach.com is our website. Um, And at official Apex Pro on Instagram and Facebook. So official Apex Pro is the way to go. And this is probably good timing, Abe, because we're about to get some tornadoes here in Alabama. So I need to uh, need to figure out what I'm going to do. Yeah. (laughs) Do you mean like this second right now? Uh, It's starting at 1 p.m. right now. Local, it's 1220. So we'll see. All right. Well, uh, uh, I wish you the best. And uh, I look (laughs) forward to seeing you at NCM. Thank you for being on the show. Can't wait. Thank you. Slip Angle was created by Austin Cabot and Adam Jubay, co-hosted by Derek Yarbrough and production by Abram Schmucker, who mixes all of our terrible audio. If you like the show, please rate us and review us on iTunes and come and find us in the pits at Gridlife to say hello. Hello.